So Job 14, we continue here with Job's uh, responses here, particularly this point responding, uh, the end of his response to Zophar. Uh, We almost made it through uh, chapter 14 last time, which would have brought us to the end of that. We got down as far as verse 6. Job there in chapter 14, verse 7, is speaking here in regards to just uh, this sense of hopelessness that he's struggling with in the midst of his great pain and Uh, the anguish, and just the great deal of suffering that he's going through, as he says in verse 7 of chapter 14, for there is hope for a tree, if it is cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its tender shoots will not cease. Though its root may grow old in the earth, and its stump may die in the ground, yet at the scent of water it will bud and bring forth branches like a plant. And what Job's illustrating here is, and if you've ever cut down a tree in your yard before or had one cut down before, it's quite an amazing process. Those guys who come out and do that, we've had one or two had to come down in our yard that you can cut down a tree. And it's amazing how after even you cut that thing down, if just somehow it gets a touch of water or some degree of hydration that even as he talks about there the stump of that thing sometimes things can begin to sprout again and little uh, branches or foliage actually start coming up through that the idea is though it looks like it's completely cut off and completely dead that it actually has the ability when it gets a little bit of saturation to actually revive and to experience life again to some degree and job's kind of using that as an analogy as a contrast and what he's basically in essence saying is Man, life is so bad, it seems like there's more hope for a tree that's nothing but a dead stump that's gotten cut down and everything's been cut out of it. It's like there's more hope for a tree than there is for me anymore, it seems. And this is kind of the analogy that Job's drawing here at this point because he then says in verse 10, but a man dies and is laid away. The idea is his opportunity is cut off. Indeed, he breathes his last and where is he? As water disappears from the sea, and a river becomes parched and dries up, he says, so a man lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more. They will not awake nor be roused from their sleep. Now, it seems Job basically contains two things here. First of all, he's speaking about what is a true reality that we only get one shot at life and you only do death once. Uh, the Bible is very clear. Job says there in verse 10, a man dies and is laid away he breathes last and where is he in other words death is permanent uh and again hebrews chapter 9 even speaks to that very reality from a new testament perspective that it says it's appointed for man to die once and then the judgment Uh, we don't get no reincarnation opportunity we don't get to go to a temporary purgatory and work things out you you get one life you get one death process Uh, No one knows the day or the hour of death. It is the one appointment that is on your calendar that you can't cancel, you can't change, you can't erase, but it's also the one appointment on your calendar that you don't actually get informed what the day and the hour is. Uh, So we can set all of our other appointments and be in control of them and move them and adjust them, but you can't do that with the death process. The Bible tells us in Psalm 139, all of our days were written in God's book before one of them came to be. Uh, And there is a appointed day to be born, and there's an appointed day to die. And only God knows that. He doesn't disclose that to any one of us, you know, how that may come about. Uh, But we all do get one shot at life, and that's why we should live life in a way understanding you only get one shot to live. 
you should live as well as possible and take things that are serious and important the way that you should. And he says, you know, man dies once and, and that's it. He just kind of disappears. He's not among the earth anymore. Verse 12, he indicates, however, and you can see how in the Old Testament they had a basic understanding of some things, uh, but lacked a lot of the clarity that you and I have from a New Testament perspective, particularly regarding resurrection and what happens after death. Job says there in verse 12, a man lies down and does not rise. And then verse 12, he also speaks about until the heavens are no more. And notice he makes a reference about being becoming awake and roused from sleep. So, Job had some basic understanding that death wasn't permanent in the sense that life is over, that there does come a time just like with sleeping, and sleep is a euphemism used really all throughout the Bible for death because it's an analogy and a picture of what happens, that when someone dies, their physical body looks like it's resting, and just like when you sleep, you lay down, you rest, but you do wake back up at some point. Uh, and they understood, at least from an Old Testament perspective, that you, you die, your body looks like it's in a resting state, it's put into a grave, but they believed that there would come a time when there was a resurrection, when you would be awakened, when there would be a resurrection of the righteous and a resurrection of the unrighteous, a resurrection of the righteous to experience you know, eternal reward if they were faithful and served God, but those who were wicked, uh, they would be resurrected to everlasting punishment and to experience their judgment. Uh, they tended to believe more that you kind of just laid in the grave, however, uh, it seems to some degree, until that time came. You notice Job says, till the heavens are no more. The idea is until God does away with the heavens and the earth and brings a culmination to all things, it won't be until that time that I am able to be awakened, the idea is, from sleep. Now, uh, that's obviously not 100% accurate because when the soul or the spirit is released from the body in death, it does go somewhere. Uh, what's interesting, and we'll see Job mentions a little bit more further on, is that your soul or spirit does depart and it goes somewhere. And so even when somebody died in the Old Testament prior to the time of Christ, your soul or the spirit, the immaterial part of you, um, it doesn't just lie dormant in the ground. Your body does, and it just decays, uh, but that needed to be somewhere. Jesus seemed to shed some light on what happens in regards to that, I believe, in Luke chapter uh, 16 there, where he talked about Lazarus and the rich man, and how when they uh, died, that they both went to a place. It seemed to be a place of the dead, referred to as Hades or Sheol. It's often referred to in the Old Testament, that seemed to be sort of a holding place where the departed that is those who would die prior to the time of christ's finished work upon the cross where they went and luke 16 describes sort of these two compartments one compartment uh where uh those were people who were suffering and who had it well in this life but were unrighteous and wicked and they were in a place of suffering and torment and on the other side it says there was a great gulf fixed between the two of them was a place called abraham's bosom the place of where the righteous who departed would go to, who were looking ahead in faith towards the Messiah, waiting for the Messiah to come and to complete his work. And that was necessary. It makes total sense that they weren't able to have direct access, if you would, into the presence of God and into eternal life upon death because Christ had not finished his redemptive work yet. And so if we want to understand correctly, again, remember Jesus said that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. 
And we believe, as New Testament believers, that the only way to get to heaven is through the mediatory work, the, you know, the, the completed work of Christ, and his death on the cross, being punished for our sins, and his resurrection is what allows us now to have access directly to God's presence after death. For the believer to be absent from the body instantaneously is to be entered into the presence of the Lord. But if the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus Christ, if Jesus had not come yet, it would have been to a degree, if you understand, impartial or or somehow backwards for God to allow Old Testament saints or followers of God, Yahweh God, who were looking forward in faith to the Messiah, if he would allow them to have direct access into heaven, then there would be a disputable matter that God was unjust because then why can't other people have direct access into heaven prior to the time and the work of Christ? So it seems that God established a way in this place of the dead in the center of the earth. Hades is what it was referred to, a place where the dead were, where there was the unrighteous compartment, if you would, and suffering and torment. And then there was a place called Abraham's bosom, which makes sense because he was the father of faith and the one who believed in righteousness by faith and received his righteousness by faith, where the, those who died in faith were being comforted. And we're being consoled until the time Christ died on the cross and completed his work. And if you remember, the Bible teaches us in the New Testament that when Christ died, it says that he descended into the lower parts of the earth. And I believe Jesus at that point descended into that place of Abraham's bosom, revealed himself as the Messiah that they were believing would come, revealed himself, introduced himself, acknowledged what he had done, and then shut down the place of Abraham's bosom. And it says Jesus led captivity captive, and he basically took those who were righteous and allowed them to have access into heaven after his work was completed so that when he ascended, he was able to bring with him all those who had died in faith, in righteousness, waiting for the Messiah to come. But, But at this point, again, Job not having full clarity in regards to those things, Job believed that what was in essence going to happen was he was going to die and just, in a sense, be like an arresting, sleeping state in the earth until the time where these events would unfold. And then at the end of the ages, that they would be resurrected, again, lacking some of the clarity. Thankfully, you and I have more clarity in regards to it. And we living on the other side of the cross in the resurrection uh, have complete access uh, to the Lord. And that when we die, the Bible tells us, that to be having faith in Christ, to be absent from the body, were instantly ushered into the presence of the Lord. So as Job's reconciling this, not with full light and clarity, some of what he's saying is with limited understanding at this point in time. He says, verse 13, Oh, that you would hide me, notice, in the grave, the, the word is literally Sheol, the place of the departed, that you would conceal me until your wrath is past, which again, interesting, until the wrath of God has passed, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. Now, I had in my notes or in my Bible here jotted down Luke 16, which is the passage I was just referring to from the prior time when I, I taught through uh, Job with the church back in York, uh, just because to me it's very interesting. I don't think Job was saying that with clarity and understanding of what he's saying, but it is very interesting that Job says, Oh, that you would hide me and conceal me until your wrath is past. God's wrath was poured out on Christ and that you would appoint me a set time and then remember me. Because in essence, that's really what took place for the Old Testament saints or those who looked ahead to the Messiah is basically God appointed a set time, the time of Christ. And then he remembered 
Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, Moses, all these Old Testament saints. And at a point in time, he went, remembered their faith and visited them and took them out of that place where they were in Luke 16 to be able to have access once they met the Messiah in person to go directly into heaven. Verse 14, Job goes on to say, and if a man dies, shall he live again? Again, you can see he's you know, kind of trying to reconcile these things. All the days of my hard service I will wait till my change comes. Again, thinking that his body would not be resurrected for a long time ago. But again, think of what light Jesus brought to these things that Job didn't yet understand that you and I now do. Job says, if a man dies, shall he live again? Now, we know that ultimately Job did believe in resurrection. He just didn't realize how and when it was going to come about in his life. Jesus, thankfully, in John chapter 11, declared, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. The idea is that absolutely we understand if a man dies, shall he live again? Most certainly. Uh, the idea is that we simply cease life physically in this realm. And we technically, as Jesus said, because our trust is him in the resurrection of life, we really never die. We just continue to live in the presence of the Lord. Uh, but again, we have that wonderful New Testament light and understanding that you know Job and some of the Old Testament saints really didn't have full clarity about as they were trying to reconcile how death and life work and so forth. But as he says, verse 14, all the days of my hard service, I will wait until change comes. Again, he just pictured his life now like just a constant burden. Life was just hard service. Nothing was enjoyable about Job's life at this point in time. It was just a constant labor. You know, maybe you've gone through seasons of life where it feels like it's hard to enjoy life and all you're basically doing is enduring life. And sometimes life can be like that. It just feels like life is just nothing but weary, hard service, especially if you're under a season maybe where there's real heavy burdens and you're just kind of waiting like Job for change to come. Like every day you just, okay, I just get through this day you know, carry the burdens and, and hoping change is just going to come at some point that there would be a, a transition. Sometimes seasons are like that where you're just waiting for the change of season. And that's what Job was longing for in the midst of his hardship and suffering. He says, you shall call and I will answer you. You shall desire the work of your hands for now you number my steps, but do not watch over my sin. My transgression is sealed up in a bag. The idea is God's fully aware of it. But then he says the end of verse 17, and you cover my iniquity. Now, for you and I, we understand that in a totally different way. God's covered our iniquity through the blood of Christ. Uh, and we have that full hope and assurance uh, that our iniquity has been completely covered because of the finished work of Jesus. Verse 18, he says, but as a mountain falls and crumbles away, and as a rock is moved from its place, as water wears away stones and torrents wash away the soil of the earth, so you destroy the hope of man. You can tell Job's getting pretty hopeless now. He says like water that can just come through and erode away, like a tarn erodes away the soil as it comes through. He says, I feel like that's what happens. He says, I feel like you're just eroding away, taking away all of my hope right now for any decent future. You prevail forever against him and he passes on. You change his countenance and send him away his sons come to honor 
and he does not know it. They are brought low, and he does not perceive it, but his flesh will be in pain over it, and his soul will mourn over it. As Job's talking about sort of the coming to the closure of life there, he says that's what it's like. You know, when somebody dies, you know, their, their sons can be honored, good things can happen, but uh, once they've passed, uh, they're not able to perceive that. They don't get to see those things anymore. Once they're dead, they're not conscious or aware of what's going on in life anymore on this earth. Well, as we come to chapter 15 now, we come to, you might fairly say, kind of like the second inning. Uh, there'll be multiple innings in this. You know, what I mean by that is the first three batters have come to the plate. They've all struck out. Eliphaz, Zophar, Bildad, they've all come up. They've all took their swings at trying to give answers to Job. They've all struck out. And now it's the second inning. So, okay, here we go, second inning. First batter up. Again, Eliphaz, he's back up now in the second inning. He's going to take a few more swings to try and say a few things to Job. He answers now and says, verse 2, Should a wise man answer with empty knowledge and fill himself with the east wind? The idea is the Sirocco, uh, eastern winds that would come through, the hot winds there in the uh, you know, arid climate, the desert-like area there. You notice there's a lot of this reference to one another back and forth. They all keep referring to each other as kind of like windbags. You know, just, you're just full of a bunch of wind. You're blowing a bunch of hot wind, nothing but irritation. But he's saying to Job, look, Job, you're supposed to be a wise man. Why, why are you speaking empty knowledge? I thought you were wise, Job. It seems like everything you're saying is so lacking in knowledge because he, again, believes he has much more knowledge. He says, verse 3, should he reason with unprofitable talk or by speeches which he can do no good. Now, that's a good reminder, honestly, for all of us there. You know, always a, a, a poor thing to try and reason with unprofitable talk. Uh, and yet sometimes we do that. And quite honestly, a lot of times we start reasoning with unprofitable talk when we actually feel like we're losing an argument. You know, you just start saying things and you get louder, you say things, but sometimes it's completely unprofitable what we're saying. It'd be much better to just cease and be quiet. And that's kind of the idea here. He says, verse 4, yes, you cast off fear and you restrain prayer before God. In other words, Job, the problem is you're, you, you've lost fear of God. You've cast off reverence for God. And he says, Job, you're restraining yourself from praying. You, you need to talk to God. You need to pray this through and just repent and, and deal with whatever it is that's going on in your personal life. Now, again, we've seen by just reading the text uh, that's a complete false accusation. Job's been the only one praying to God. Here, this guy's saying the problem is, is there's a lack of prayer in your life, and you just need to talk this through with God and get things right in your personal life and repent. Uh, and the reality is, is Job's been praying all throughout this book. He's the only one that has been praying. The other guys talk to Job, but we haven't seen them talk to God at all yet. He says, verse 5, again, to this same mantra, for your iniquity teaches your mouth. Just listen to yourself, Job. You'll see your own sin. And choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, he says. Not I. Yes, your own lips testify against you. Are you the first man who was born, he says, or were you made before the hills? Have you heard the counsel of God? Do you limit wisdom? To yourself, In other words, Job, do you think you're wiser than us? Are you the only man who has wisdom? Were you around before anyone else? Now, uh, again, certainly that's accurate. Job didn't have more wisdom to God, and he wasn't the only one with wisdom. But uh, the idea there is, is they're trying to kind of 
you know, accuse Job that, that his problem was is that he was too arrogant to listen to anyone else. That's the problem, Job. You think somehow that only you have the answers, and so therefore you won't receive our counsel. And it wasn't that Job wouldn't receive their counsel. Uh, it was just wrong. It was wrong counsel. Uh, and I don't care who's talking to you. If it's wrong counsel, you shouldn't listen to it. Uh, and Job was discerning enough to recognize that, but they're just offended because uh, he won't buy into their thing that, the righteous always prosper and the wicked always suffer. Uh, and Job is trying to say all throughout this, look, that may be true sometimes, but that's not true all the time. Remember Job said in prior chapters, look, there are times when robbers and thieves are prospering for a season. Uh, you can't use that as a blanket statement and their counsel didn't apply to every situation. And this was their problem as they were trying to use their ideas and apply it generally to everything. And it was poor counsel, and Job knew that, and that's why he was disputing it. They go on to say, What do you know that we don't know? And what do you understand that's not in us? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, much older than your father. Now, seems here they're making the reference to the fact that, look, Job, we're older than you. Can't you see? We have gray hair. We're, we're actually older than you are. In fact, we're even older than your father. So the idea is, so Job, look, we have wisdom. You should listen to us. Now, to one degree, there's accuracy to that. The Bible even testifies that, you know, the, the, the gray hair is referred to as a crown of wisdom. And the idea is that, you know, with age comes wisdom. Uh, and there's truth to that to a degree. When someone has lived longer, they usually have a good considerable amount of wisdom because they've just journeyed through more things. They got more experience and uh, it's wise to pay attention to those who are older to a degree because often they can have wisdom. But again, that's not a blanket guarantee in every situation uh, because you know as well as I do, you can have someone who's a godly older individual that's a gray-haired man or woman and boy, they are filled with wisdom and can supply great counsel and then by the same token, I know people that have gray hair who have lived wild and rebellious and foolish, and I would not listen to a thing that they would say because age doesn't guarantee wisdom. Uh, it, it can be a source of wisdom, but if you've lived foolishly your whole life, it doesn't matter how old you are, uh, you can give some really poor counsel to those who are younger. So again, you have to be careful. Just because somebody's older, they've got to be wiser. Uh, well, the Bible also says there are other ways to receive wisdom, and that can come even in younger years if you have the wisdom of God's word, and you have the which Psalm one nineteen refers about. If you have the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, there are other ways to acquire wisdom. Uh, and so Job's saying, you're going to say here, look, I understand you guys are older, but they're saying you should listen because we're older. But as older men, they were giving him poor counsel. Verse 11, they say, are the consolations of God too small for you? In other words, the consolations of God. Job, we're trying to bring you God's comfort. Can't you see it? Isn't this good enough? You don't want God's comfort? And the word spoken gently with you? Why does your heart carry you away? And what do your eyes wink at? The idea is winking, he's, you know, winking at sin. That is, he's, you know, trying to have a blind eye to what's going on in his life and doesn't want to admit it is the implication that you turn your spirit against God and let such words go out of your mouth. Wow, that's pretty critical and judgmental there, Job. They say your heart's carried away. Then verse 13, why do you turn your spirit against God? Well, hold on a minute. The last time I checked, 
how can somebody else clearly, with a guarantee, know what's going on in somebody else's spirit? The only person that genuinely knows what's going on in someone else's spirit is God. Again, certainly the Bible says that we can you know, judge somebody by the fruit that we see in their life to a degree, but that has nothing to do with it. It's not like there's bad fruit in Job's life that was measurable bad fruit. Okay, Job has been doing wicked and ungodly things. The Bible says the exact opposite. He lived very righteous outwardly. So it wasn't like they were criticizing or judging him because they could see bad fruit. What they're doing is just making an accusation and saying something in your spirit inside of you is not right. They say in your spirit, you've turned against God. You're winking at sin in your personal life. Look, that's a place we never want to go to. That's not our business to judge what's going on in someone's heart or in someone's spirit. You know, my job is to love people. God's job is to know what's going on inside of somebody's spirit and deal with somebody in their spirit. And we want to be very, very careful because sometimes we can really misjudge a person by trying to read into what's going on in their heart or their spirit internally uh, when we can be completely off base and, and misunderstanding something in a very poor way. He says, verse 14, what is man that he could be pure? And he who was born of a woman that he could be righteous. Well, to a degree, that is true. If God puts no trust in his saints and the heavens are not pure in his sight, how much less a man who is abominable and filthy who drinks iniquity like water. So Job, if, if God doesn't trust his servants and he can find things that are you know, not pure in his sight, then he says, how much less a man, now he's implying Job, how much less a man who is abominable, filthy, and Job, you're just quenching your thirst on iniquity like water. You're drinking big gulps full of sin and doing evil things in, you know, in your private life. Again, I mean, you know, it's the exclamation point. That's, he's kind of making a harsh accusation there again. I will tell you, he says, verse 17, hear me. When I have seen, I will declare what wise men have told, not hiding anything received from their father's to whom alone the land was given and no alien passed among them. The wicked man writhes with pain all his days and the number of years is hidden from the oppressor. Now, to a degree, you know, the Bible does speak of how living wickedly brings problems and pain and suffering. Uh, but again, it's not a universal thing that the wicked always suffers and is in pain and the righteous never suffers and is never in pain. And that's the implication. Job, the reason you're in all this pain from head to toe with the boils and all your miserable suffering in your flesh and your affliction and your health condition, the Job, the reason you're writhing in pain is you've got to be wicked. And the reality is, is the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible is very clear that you know, though the wicked may suffer at times because they've lived wickedly and they bring pain and consequences into their life, the Bible also is very clear that the righteous at times do suffer as well, that God's people do get sick. God's people do have, you know, painful, traumatic things that happen in their lives. And we're not immune from suffering just because, uh, you know, we serve the Lord. The Bible doesn't teach universally that the, the unrighteous, suffer and the righteous never have pain and never have suffering and that's what they're trying to apply as their understanding and that was completely inaccurate and why job continued to dispute with them over this line of reasoning 
Verse 21, dreadful sounds, they say, are in his ears. In prosperity, the destroyer comes upon him. He does not believe that he will return from darkness for a sword is waiting for him. He wanders about for bread, saying, where is it? He knows that a day of darkness is ready at his hand. Trouble and anguish make him afraid. They overpower him like a king ready for battle. For he stretches out his hand against God and acts defiantly against the Almighty, running stubbornly against him with his strong embossed shield. Again, the picture here is someone who's battling against God, someone who's fighting against God. He says he stretches out his hand against God, acting defiantly against the Almighty, running stubbornly like somebody who's running against somebody in a battle to have conflict. And all of the uh, you know, imagery above that of all the complications and the struggles and problems that go on in someone's life, you know, trouble and anguish and, uh, you know, finding yourself living in darkness rather than light and your prosperity is being destroyed. He's saying that's what happens because you're acting defiantly against God. That's why you're going through all this trouble. And look, to a degree, the Bible teaches, woe to him who strives against his maker. And in a sense, it is true that if somebody lives in rebellion to God, they're going to bring problems into their life. They're going to bring a degree of pain and suffering. They're going to be walking around in darkness and having trouble more than what they need to in this life. But it is wrong for us to think when we see someone in trouble or going through hardship or you know, their prosperity goes out of their life or they go through some difficulty to assume that it's because they're defiantly rebelling against God. Uh, because that's not always accurate. There are times where God lets us, as his people, go through trials and go through times of suffering and difficulty and loss of jobs or loss of health or you know, loss of a loved one or w- whatever may come into our lives. And it's not God's consequence against us for wrong living. So again, we don't ever want to apply these principles in wrong ways because not only can we really hurt others, but we can really throw ourselves into a whole lot of confusion where we find ourselves suffering, and at some point in our lives, from time to time, we will find ourselves suffering. And if we begin to believe this kind of ideology of Job's friends, then every time we're suffering, we will add to our own suffering because we will begin to think, I must have done something to offend God. Whether it's something I did last week or last month or, you know what? If I really think about it, man, I remember I used to get so mad when... Aunt Frances would pinch my cheeks and I would say nasty things about her. That's what it probably is. And, and, you know, and you'll go through this whole process of always, on top of suffering, torturing yourself mentally and psychologically, thinking that it has something to do with some past mistake or some prior failure or something that's just not right and God's getting you. Uh, and, and that is the furthest thing from what God is, is doing because the reality is we have to settle, especially for us, on this side of of the cross and resurrection to realize, look, does God bring punishment for sin? Absolutely. But God got Jesus on the cross once for all. And the efficacy or the efficiency of the punishment of Jesus Christ on the cross when he died for our sins, the Bible says that the wrath of God was fully laid upon him. That is all of God's righteous anger and wrath for every sin of all of humanity 
from the breath of Adam to the breath of the last human being on this earth, all of that wrath against every person's sin and thought, word, and deed was all poured out upon Jesus Christ. That's when God punished sin. So God can't double back and then punish sin in the life of one of his children who's saying, my full confidence is in that finished work of Christ for me. I accept that for myself by faith. And God says, okay, you're forgiven. You're trusting the right source. And if our confidence is in that, in a sense, we're questioning the, the, the fullness of what Jesus did. If we think somehow something I did might've slipped through the cracks. So God's still got to, he's got to give me a few more spankings for that thing I did last week or that thing that I did last month or that thing that I did you know, years ago in my life. Does God discipline us? Yes, but there's a difference between discipline and punishment. One is corrective, the other is punitive. And that's where we have to be careful. May God correct me from time to time to get my attention? Yes, but he's not in a punitive way trying to punish me and torture me for some wrong thing that was done in my life at some point in time. And, and we need to be very, very careful that certainly we don't want to convey that to others, but we can really start to wrongly think this through ourselves and think somehow there's something in our relationship with God that's causing our difficulty at times. He says, verse 27, though he has covered his face with his fatness and made his waist heavy with fat. Now, again, understand when the Bible talks about a, a fat face or, or a heavy waist like that, uh, in that culture, very different than our culture, that was actually considered an indication of wealth and prosperity. Again, today, you know, we overindulge ourselves because we have way too much. And so we have issues with weight, especially in American culture, of course, because we have so much affluence. In that day and age, if you had enough food to get fat, you were a rich man. People typically didn't get fat. They didn't get fat in their face and fat around the waist because most people didn't have enough to eat the majority of the time. You had just enough to get a meal for a day. You were glad if you worked hard, you got a meal. You lived kind of, kind of day to day. If somebody had a fat face or a fat waist, that was an indication of wealth or prosperity. Now, what he's trying to say here is Job, right at one point, remember at the beginning of the book told us, Job was very prosperous. He was very wealthy. So he's saying, yeah, Job, at one time you were a wealthy, prosperous man, he says, but he dwells now in desolate cities and in houses which no one inhabits which are destined to become ruins. In other words, Job, you've lost everything that you once had. You've lost all your prosperity because of your wickedness. He will not be rich, nor will his wealth continue. The idea is God stripped you of your wealth, Job, nor will his possessions overspread the earth. He will not depart from darkness. The flame will dry out its branches and by the breath of his mouth, he will go away. Let him not trust in futile things, deceiving himself that is job wake up stop deceiving yourself it will be accomplished before his time and his branch will not be green he will shake off his unripe uh, grape like a vine and cast off his blossom like an olive tree now the idea there of again children were pictured as uh, you know like uh, fruit on your vineyard and so they is kind of saying job even your own children the loss of their lives it's your fault he's getting back to again. That's why you've lost the fruit of the womb because of what you've done. That's why your children have passed, he's saying. For the company of hypocrites will be barren and fire will consume the tents of bribery. They conceive trouble and bring forth futility. Their womb prepares deceit. In other words, Job, why are you experiencing now this futile, empty 
experience because you conceived it. You conceived it, and therefore it's brought forth the trouble and the futility in your life. You're reaping what you've sowed is basically what he's telling Job once again. So you can understand how Job's feeling at this point. Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. You know, that's one of those statements there you want to hang on to when people try and comfort you sometime. They're not doing a real good job because we can all mess up in that area. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall words of wind, look now he says, you think I'm a windbag? Shall words of wind have an end? In other words, when will you stop blowing smoke and wind that's worthless? He says, shall words of wind have an end? When will it happen? Or what provokes you that you answer? He says, I could also speak as you do. If your soul were in my soul's place, I could heap up words against you and shake my head at you. In other words, Job says it's easy to stand on the outside and make accusations. He says, if I were in your shoes, I could do the same thing. I could just start pointing out things and assuming things because that's what they're doing. I could start assuming things and drawing my own conclusions. Job says, there's, there's nothing perceptive or wise about what you're doing. I could be critical just like you. I could be harsh just like you are. You know, Abraham Lincoln made this statement. I have it, again, written here from last time I was going through the book of Job. Abraham Lincoln said, uh, he has a right to criticize who has a heart to help. He has a right to criticize who has a heart to help. A lot of times people don't have a heart to help. They just like to criticize. Whether it's criticizing a person, whether it's criticizing a situation. And a lot of times people like to make critical statements and critique things and critique families. And well, that's why and, and critique what they see. But they don't have no heart to help. And, and, and look, you got to start with a heart to help because when you have a heart to help. You'll actually find you end up being less critical and you'll want to just understand somebody. And rather than having an interest to critique and criticize, have a heart to help. And if you have a heart to help, you won't be interested in criticizing as much and just launching accusations and assumptions. You actually want to understand what, what is going on and, and how can I help and, and understand what they're suffering through and be compassionate. And look, this is what Job goes on to say, verse 5. Look what he says. He says, I could speak as you do if my soul we're in your soul's place. Again, you're, you're not in my shoes, Job says. You don't understand what I'm going through. You're just making accusations and assuming things. I could heap up words against you and shake my head at you. But, he says, if it were me, I would strengthen you with my mouth and the comfort of my lips would relieve your grief. Job says, that's what I would aim to do. I would try and use my words to strengthen you, to speak strength into your life to build you up, to, to do what I can to help revive you in, in a condition where you're really drawn down. And he says, and I would try and use my words, he says, to comfort you and relieve your grief. You know what? I mean, what a great reminder there. That's true wisdom and true godly wisdom. When you see somebody hurting and struggling, folks, look, whether they caused it themselves, they didn't cause it themselves, what, what, whatever the reason, when you see somebody hurting and struggling, the best thing you can do is try and use your words to strengthen people, to comfort people, to relieve their grief. Again, whether it's grief that they didn't cause or grief that they didn't cause, don't heap more pain into their life. 
by saying things that are just going to be worthless or hurtful. Just, you know, love people in that condition and, and try and strengthen them and comfort them and use words to build them up. You know, it was an old adage years ago, if you don't got something good to say, don't say nothing, right? And, and, and what great wisdom there is to that. You know, the Bible tells us in the New Testament that we should use our words for edification. Anybody can criticize. We're all experts at that. Where we struggle with is actually speaking words to encourage people, to strengthen people, find somebody struggling down and out, and don't say anything but something that helps them or strengthens them. Boost them up. Give them a word of encouragement, some way to try and relieve some of the grief of what they're going through in their life. Job says that would be the right thing to do, which his friends were neglecting. He says, though I speak, my grief is not relieved. And if I remain silent, how am I eased? Again, Job's really in a, between a rock and a hard place. He says, if I speak or if I remain silent, my grief and my suffering, it doesn't go away either way. Whether I talk about it, I'm still not relieved. When I don't talk about it, I'm still not relieved. I mean, you can just tell this guy's really going through a, a tough time. And maybe you've been there before where you're going through something hard. You think, maybe I need to talk about it. And then you, oh, maybe if I don't talk about it. Because <laughs> when I talk about it, then I think about it more. And then, no, I don't know. I need to get it. I, gotta, I, need, I need to just get it off my chest a little bit. And then you, oh, how did this remind me about it all? And you kind of go back and forth. And it's like when you're in a hard time of suffering, it's like neither one sometimes can give you the grief or the comfort you're looking for the relief from. He says, but now... And notice he's referring to God. You can tell Job's in a low place here, verse 7. But now, he says of God, he has worn me out. In other words, God, you're, you're wearing me out. Let me go through this. You're putting me through it. And he says, I'm starting to feel pretty worn out. And maybe you felt like that sometimes if God's had you in a season where you feel like you're under a heavy load. You're just feeling kind of worn out. He says, you've made me desolate of all my company. You've shriveled me up. He's, again, he's talking to God here. He's, he's praying. He's kind of processing this, talking to God. God, you've shriveled me up, and it is a witness against me. My leanness rises up against me and bears witness to my face. He, now that's God again, he tears me in his wrath and hates me. Feels like God hates him. You ever feel like God's angry at you? I'm sure, that's never been a struggle, right? God, he says, I feel like you're tearing me up and like you hate me. He gnashes at me with his teeth. It's like he's chewing me up. My adversary sharpens his gaze on me. They gape at me. Now he's talking about others. They gape at me with their mouth. They strike me reproachfully on the cheek. They gather together against me. God has delivered me to the ungodly and turned me over to the hands of the wicked. Now, I have the, the word Jesus written in there because... If you think about what Job's saying in verse 10 and 11, isn't that a very picturesque description by the Holy Spirit of exactly what Jesus experienced? If you look at Job's word, they gape at me with their mouth, strike me reproachfully on the cheek. God has delivered me to the ungodly and turned me over to the hands of the wicked. Psalm 22, Psalm 68, you read the Gospels. That's exactly what happened to Jesus. They spoke reproachfully against Jesus. They struck him in the face, they ripped his beard out of his cheeks. He was delivered over to the ungodly and crucified in a disgraceful way upon the cross. Again, Job's suffering in the midst of his sufferings, the Holy Spirit is doing things in him and through him that he has no idea. 
And here, as this is being recorded, as Job's speaking words, he's in some ways prophetically speaking of the sufferings of Christ. And again, as, as God's allowing us to suffer sometimes, he's doing things in us and through us that often we don't even realize, and yet God's divine purposes through Job as he speaks these things, we see glimmers of the sufferings of Christ even in Job's life right there. He says, verse 12, I was at ease, but he has shattered me. He has also taken me by the neck and shaken me to pieces. He set me up for his target. I feel like, God, you're using me for target practice right now. His archers surround me. He pierces my heart and does not pity. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with wound upon wound. Remember, Job had those broken blisters and boils that were breaking open. It says he runs at me like a warrior. God, I feel like that you're just putting yourself in battle against me and attacking me. I have sewn sackcloth over my skin and laid my head in the dust. My face is flushed from weeping, and on my eyelids is the shadow of death. Although no violence is in my hands and my prayer is pure. He says, I feel like I'm innocent, but yet I spend my days weeping and struggling. Now look at verses 18 through the remainder of the chapter, so what Job begins to say here again. O earth, do not cover my blood. O let my cry have no resting place. Surely even now my witness is in heaven. And my evidence, the one who speaks evidence on my behalf as an advocate, he says, is on high. My friends scorn me. My eyes pour out tears to God. Oh, that one might plead for a man with God as a man pleads for his neighbor. For when a few years are finished, I shall go the way of no return. Do you notice again what Job is beginning to speak about there? He's talking about in a hopeful way that he just wished that he could find a mediator on his behalf. You see what he says there in verse 19, particularly in verse 21, he says, even now my witness, the idea is the one who would testify on my behalf is in heaven and my evidence of my innocence is on high and then his longing, verse 21, oh, that one might plead for a man with God, that one may stand on behalf of a man and plead like an intercessor before God on his behalf. Again, here's Job speaking these things, having no awareness at all that he's perfectly beginning to describe exactly what Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, would do that he would be the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, and that Jesus would become our intercessor at the right hand of God. You know, we know from a New Testament perspective that that is exactly right now what the present ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ is for all of us, is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He rose again from the dead the third day, and he ascended back into heaven, and now he is at the right hand of the Father, and the New Testament teaches that he is functioning as our intercessor, as our advocate. It tells us in Romans chapter 8 that he is in heaven forever making intercession on our behalf. In Hebrews chapter 7, it says the same thing, that he is making intercession on our behalf. First John chapter 2 tells us that even if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And exactly what Job is longing for, he didn't even fully grasp that the Holy Spirit was using him prophetically to speak about exactly what God was going to do. 
God was going to provide a way to have a, a credible witness in heaven who would provide evidence on high. Because see, as we sin and fail, Jesus is there. And every time the accuser of the brethren, Satan, wants to point out the sin in my life from my past or my present struggles or my future mistakes, Jesus Christ, my intercessor and the advocate there, is able to give credible testimony as a witness in heaven and provide evidence to say, yes, Tony is an absolute failure. That is true. However, the evidence of these wounds are living proof forever and for all of eternity that that sin was paid for and that he can't be punished for any of those crimes. And there's perfect, accurate evidence in heaven as Jesus stands there on our behalf, pleading on behalf of any man or any woman whose faith and trust is in Christ so that we can continue to experience the favor of God. Though we're still failures and though we're still faulty, that because our faith is in the finished work of Jesus, the Bible tells us in 1 John that all we now need to do if our faith is in Christ for his finished work, it says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because there's a righteous basis and the evidence of Christ's life in heaven as our intercessor allows God, whenever we fail, to be able to have a faithful and a just basis to always forgive our sin because of what Jesus did and because he stands there as our intercessor. And look, I don't think Jesus is just there as our intercessor only because of our sin. I believe Jesus is also there as our intercessor also for our sufferings and for our struggles. And Hebrews 4 seems to indicate that as well, that we can come boldly to the throne of grace and obtain mercy and grace for helping us in our time of need. Hebrews 2 talks about the same thing, that we have Jesus Christ who's gone before us and is there in heaven. And look, how wonderful to know that as we struggle, whether it's our struggles with sin, or as we just struggle in this life, generally, because of the effects of sin, universally, sickness, hardship, difficulty, struggles in this crazy, sinful, fallen world, hurt and pain and hardship and suffering and loss of loved ones and death and all the struggles we go through in our humanity to know that there is one in heaven constantly interceding for you. Father, strengthen him. Strengthen him. Father, this is a hard time. Strengthen him with the and, and, and interceding and pleading on our behalf that the divine resources of heaven would come into our life as we need them. Father, strengthen her, give her grace and help her through this time. And what a wonderful thing to know that not only are you praying, but you have the greatest prayer warrior in the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God man there standing in the gap, interceding on your behalf to provide whatever help that you need. That's a great assurance because we're going to struggle. Life's got struggles, but you don't got to struggle without hope. and You don't got to struggle alone because you're not alone. Because Jesus will never leave you and Jesus will never forsake you. Let's stand together. We'll conclude there.